Welcome once again to A Voice in the Distance as we're continuing to uh, come close to the end as we are venturing through Luke chapter 22. And what I like to do is, if you've been following along, uh, what I like to do is I normally like to kind of give a recap of what we've been over so far in previous chapters, um, because it kind of gives us a better understanding of not just what happened, but where we're going and what's to come, and also just to kind of recap on some things of importance that we might have forgotten about. And so, again, chapter 21 was a wonderful chapter with, again, as always, a lot of diverse uh, uh, writings from the uh, Apostle Luke. And so we started out in the beginning with the observation of a widow, a very poor widow who gave everything she had, which was only two mites. And uh, basically, again, that was very, very little of any form of net worth, but it was all she had. She gave as part of her tithe and gift to the, at the temple. And the Lord had observed her from a distance and seen what she had given and actually made observation of her to the disciples to use her as the example of a true blessing. He said, see that that widow who put in those two mites, she gave everything she had. And yet there was wealthy in the area giving so much. Now we have to keep in mind, you know, when, when we think of philanthropy, when we think of people who are, who are generous givers, who might have donated, if you, if you look at a multimillionaire who gives thousands of dollars or maybe even a few million dollars, that to them is a drop in the bucket. It looks big to the public eye, but to, to them it's a drop in the bucket. But to this widow who had nothing and all she had to be put into that offering box over at the temple was something impressive to the Lord. He was impressed by it. He was actually using her as the example. And so after that, he he also gave the the uh, predictions of of things to come with the destruction of the temple. He gave the uh, predictions of the destruction of Jerusalem to come. He gave the predictions of the the coming of the Son of Man, which is him, who's going to be coming back once again one day in in new form. And then most of all, at the end of chapter 1, he kind of gave what I'd like to think of as kind of, again, the, the more of the revealing of where he was going, which was the importance of watching. Watching what? Well, watching yourselves, watching what's going on around you. See, the Lord said to take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. What day is that? That is the coming of the Lord's Savior, Jesus Christ, coming back once again. He made it known that he was going to return, and he made it known that when he does return, no one's going to know when it is. No warning, no time frame, just, just what he gave us 2,000 years ago. And it could be at any given moment. And so what he's doing is he's he's trying to prepare us to be prepared for him. He's trying to prepare us to be prepared for just our time to be called home in in any given moment, whatever the case may be. Because I've said before, we'll continue to say, we don't get to choose our birthday, we don't get to choose our last day. And so he is going to show when he shows. And the question is, is, are we ready for it? How well have we been preparing for that arrival? How long are we, how long have we been preparing? How well have we been preparing for our arrival to Him? Whichever may come first. One of the two is going to happen one day, and what needs to happen is preparation. Now, the question too, and it's not always how long, but how well. 
Uh, there's there's people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, but they might not have been preparing for uh, for His coming or for their for their arrival home very uh, very much. And then there's some who maybe just uh, became Christians at a, at a at a young age or whatever, and and they're and they're going strong, and they haven't been walking for a while. But man, they've really been uh, preparing themselves for the Lord. So again, the importance is is how how are we preparing ourselves? Are we preparing ourselves? He says, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And what he was doing was, again, preparing us for the things that are, are, that are going to come and making, making sure that we're ready for those things. We don't want to be living a life of falsehood. We don't want to be living a life of what this world thinks is great because what the world teaches is what the opposite of the Lord teaches. He teaches things that are edifying. The world teaches things that are temporary, that are just nothing more than what I like to refer to as an age of aspirin. <laughs> you know, the temporary reliefs of stress, reliefs of a heart attack, if you will, when the Lord is preparing us for a lifestyle and an eternity of greatness. You know, there. I don't know what is so... I don't know what is so um, attractive to the things that people are attracted to is what the Lord said to beware of, the carousing and the drunkenness and the cares of this life. And many can attest to that. I could look back at days and think like, what have I done? Why did I do that? And how ridiculous. But what the Lord gave me was a gift, and it was a gift of, of two things, a gift of time and a gift of deliverance. So do we take advantage of the time and did we take advantage of the deliverance? Well, we're going to be observing chapter 22 because, again, I've said before that what happens is is that as we get further here, we're almost to the end where Jesus is going to be arrested and, and then uh, crucified. So if you had something to say to somebody, if you had something to say of importance to somebody, when, if you knew you were going to go, what would you say? What kind of advice would you give? Would you give them some of the most uh, powerful exhorting you've ever given or would you just basically just tell them what you'd want to tell them that has no substance to it. And so we could look at people and their advice and things that they've given, and sometimes it's good, but they can't take it with them sometimes. It got them nowhere. Take heed to what the Lord says, because what he says gets us somewhere. It gets us into eternity. But what happens here is is, uh, what the Lord is now facing, is we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 22, and I'm going to read a, a... Good section here from verses 1 to 13. And it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to draw near, which is called Passover. And the chief priest and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and and, uh, conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to portray him to them in the absence of the multitude. And then came the day of the unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he uh, he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover to us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you where the, uh, where the guest room is. 
where may, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And then he will show you a large furnished upper room, and there make ready. So they went and found it, just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. So, well, we see that we have come to the time that is near, um, which is near the end of the stage, which is set for the Lord to die. These chief priests and scribes have finally got to the low of loaves in plotting murder. And now, as this was the destiny of our Lord, it does not condone the actions of the ones planning the murder. And actually, and the same goes for the one who betrayed him in Judas Iscariot. You know, as Satan entered him, as the Lord and Judas dipped the bread together in the upper room, and in the other in the other Gospels, from Matthew and, and uh, John and so on and so forth, it had stated that when Jesus made known that the uh, betrayer is amongst us in this room, the one who dips his bread with me in the cup is going to be the one who's the betrayer. And it said that as soon as that happened, Satan had entered Judas Iscariot. So now, but at this time, the Passover feast was happening, which was perfect timing as representation of what Christ was doing for the world as what God had done for the Israelites when freeing them from Egypt and their slavery. And if you remember when it was time to go at that time, God told the people of Israel to kill a lamb and paint the upper door case with its blood. So that way, when the death angel comes through the area, um, and the blood of the lamb would, would identify those to be saved from death. Because God had told Moses that the last plague was going to be set, that if Pharaoh wasn't to release the people, that the firstborn uh, male born in Egypt would, would be killed. And so the blood on the door, on the uh, door frame, above the door frame, was the indication of those who were with God and obedient to God and therefore saved by God. Well, what timing for the Lord to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, which was right around the time of the Passover feast. And we can see little signs from the hand of God and how perfect it all came together. When there was attempts to stone the Lord, there was attempts to trap him. And the Passover feast and the celebration... And then the Lord telling them, you will see a man carrying a pitcher of water and entering a house. Follow him in there, he says. And, and why I make that known was because culturally back then, uh, that was the job of a woman, not normally a man. You didn't see men carrying pitchers of water for whatever reason. That was more of the, something that women did from a cultural standpoint. So it was an, uh, it was an easy spotting of the Lord's sovereignty. But with his sovereignty, we also see his heart of fellowship uh, before the ultimate beating that he was about to take. And we're fortunate that we did not have to go through the process of atonement in our days. And and, and in these days, they did because it was a very messy, it was a very costly and time-consuming thing to make atonement for sins against God. So we as Gentiles, which means the opposite of Jews, especially in these days, really do not take into consideration the process of what was done, and also within the pain of such, you know. Uh, there was a Bible college professor who, uh, he did his seminary training in Switzerland. And he wrote a book on uh, Christ being the only Savior. And it was actually one of the books I had to read during my time in Bible college on the doctrine of Christ. And uh, he told the story of how he and his wife were driving home at night on a dark country road. And when a deer came out of nowhere, and he hit he hit the deer. Now the deer didn't die, but he the deer started to stagger out into the woods. He 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 knew right then and there the deer wasn't going to make it. And so what he did was is he basically he had a knife in the back of his uh, in the trunk of his car, 
And so he took out the knife, knowing that the deer was going to suffer, and decided to kind of help him on his way, if you will. And I'll never forget what he said, as he said that I, as he was... He cut the throat of the deer and he was holding it and he said he could, I could literally feel the life draining from it. And it gave him a better understanding of what had to be done and what it felt like to have to, to have to kill an innocent animal. Now in this case, this was a mercy call because of him hitting the deer and the deer was going to suffer. But it gave him an idea of what it felt like because it was even harder when you had to raise these animals for the sake of your atonement. And, and as he had an idea of what it was like to have to kill an innocent animal, imagine knowing uh, that the one closest to you would have to go through a torturous death for your sake. So I, I would encourage us to really put ourselves in the account that was written. And, you know, as if you were, if, as if we were there versus just reading about it and then closing the book without a second thought. Remember that this account involved you and I today. Because of what was to take place, it had you and I in mind in a place with the Lord. And my prayer is that that would grab our attention. That everything that was done on the cross was within us in mind. So I ask that we do not just read this for the sake of knowing it, but also just really meditating upon it to put ourselves in the situation to realize the importance of what it was that Christ did and why. 14 to 23. And then it says, When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles were with him. And then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it fulfilled in the, day, in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. So what we're looking at is the beginning of communion. It was the very first communion with the Lord and the disciples. And uh, this was done with the Lord having a fervent desire to gather with them. Uh, we can see it as the as the Last Supper together, but as a spoiler alert, it wasn't really, uh, I wouldn't consider it the Last Supper because Jesus actually cooked breakfast for them on the seashore of Galilee when he returned three days later. It wasn't to say goodbye because he seen them three days later. <laughs> so I, I like to look at this as, as not necessarily the last time they ate together, but this was like the big gathering, the big faithful gathering uh, before the time on the cross. But the Lord, you know, it's amazing because we'll see that the Lord actually, uh, he actually cooked breakfast for them one more time that we've seen in the scriptures. But it was to institute the new covenant, and to remind them of how to celebrate his death and his works on the cross. Just like the consistent celebration of the Passover feast, which is uh, which they celebrated right there. You, you look at the Passover feast, there was the meal and the cups of wine. Uh, and that was served four times during the supper as part of the celebration. So he says, do this often in remembrance of me. 
Okay, once a year in the United States, we celebrate Memorial Day. On, on the, uh, Memorial Day, on the brave men and women who died in, in their service over the years for the country. But in communion, we celebrate often. Some uh, churches do it once a month and some do it weekly. And praise, Lord, praise the Lord for it because it's deserved to be celebrated that often. For he died for the whole world, taking the bread in reference to his broken body. And, and the cup in regards to the blood that would be lost for our sake of eternal existence and forgiveness of sins once and for all. Uh, this was something that had to be celebrated or that was has been celebrated for 2,000 years. And what a blessing. But you see, there was an important aspect to this that is often forgotten. And that is the way that it is received in that of communion. Uh, I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter one, uh, chapter 11. And we're going to be observing verses 24 through 34 as it was written by uh, the Apostle Paul. And though he was not at the Last Supper, the Lord taught him one-on-one in regards to this. But I want us to listen closely on what Paul was teaching. In verse 24 it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and, and, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy worthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many asleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. So, when we're taking in communion, we're taking in the Lord, and we're reinviting him into us again in the celebration of his sacrifice, his holiness. And what Paul made known was the serious nature to us believers in that celebration. Uh, partaking in it is in the remembrance, but it's also in the gratitude of the work on the cross and should be taking in the deepest gratitude. You know, as Paul made known, many become sick when they partake communion with evil thoughts and ways. If I could compare it to something, it's it's like eating healthy all day long, but then come nighttime, you, you sit down and you eat a carton of ice cream and a whole bunch of candy, and now you're extremely sick. Because everything that you ate healthy that day was now compromised. And, and with that, during the Last Supper came the acts of Judas, as he was now revealed as the betrayer of the group. Now, they all began to question if it was they. Is it me? Is it, who is it? You know, Which shows that anyone is susceptible to betrayal. But yet, Judas, he disguised it well because Jesus spoke of hypocrisy before. Which was, hypocrisy was interpreted to as an actor with many masks in a play. Uh, and that was it, like within the productions of those days, he, uh, they would have many masks that they would change in between costumes. He hid it well. Because they didn't point at him directly. They were questioning themselves. See, but the Lord knew who it was. And I want to make known and point out something special about the Lord in regards to this. 
See, Jesus always knew who it was. Yet Judas was never treated any less than by our Lord. And I've always found that that was uh, worth making known because in that upper room, Jesus washed every one of their feet. He didn't skip Judas. He didn't treat him any differently. He made known what was to come. And, Ju and Jesus always knew who was going to do it. But we've never seen anywhere where the Lord actually treated him any different. And I've always found that amazing about our Father. But I want to continue here to look at what else is happening. Let's look at 24 through 30. The disciples start to kind of get into it here. It says, Now there was also a dispute amongst them, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you, on the contrary. He who is greatest among you, let him be the younger. And he who governs is, is he who serves, for he is greater... He who is greater, is he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, we see a contradiction in regards to what the world thinks compared to what the Lord says in regards to leadership and greatness. Yeah, the Gospel of Mark showed that uh, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves on who was going to be the greatest amongst them. And then we've we seen the mother of John, John the Beloved and James, the two brothers. The mother of them asked the Lord that her two sons sit at each side of, of his throne, not even acknowledging the other disciples. Uh, so what we see is typical worldly acts from people who want power and acknowledgement. See, the Lord used the term benefactor, which was a term used for kings in the ancient times. But just because they're a leader, it doesn't mean they're a good leader. Because the greatest leader was Christ Jesus. And the best leaders ever observed, or that we've ever noticed throughout the years, were the ones who followed Christ Jesus and his ways and teachings. There are the world systems, and then there's the Lord's systems. Uh, the world systems is, it's best to be at the table being served. Where the Lord's is, his system is, it's best to be the one serving. Well, let's look at the example of what he said in the other Gospels when they were in the upper room. And of all the people, it was the Lord who put the towel around his waist, which was a servant's garment. And he started to wash all the feet of the disciples, as I mentioned, which was the act of a house slave. He did this for them and instructed them to do the same. Because the greatest in the kingdom is a servant of all. And, you know, could you imagine a king uh, shining the shoes of maybe a corporate executive in the airport? You know, have you ever been through certain airports? They have a lot of shoe shining chairs over there. Well, I think what's neat is that the king of kings, Christ Jesus, would be doing it. He wouldn't have any qualms. Now, their job at the airport was much more luxurious compared to what Christ did, but in the eyes of the world, they would rather be in the chair getting their shoes shined rather than being the one serving. We can see all types of leadership in the world, in companies, in churches, families, nonprofit organizations, whatever, you know. But every Christian leader is required to have a servant's heart. Because I, I remember having a conversation with a corporate executive in a company that I worked for, and he named certain people. 
on how they got where they did in the company. He said this particular guy was there because of his work ethic. This other guy was there because of his knowledge of the industry. And this guy was there because of his character. And then he said about himself, I got where I'm at because I'm effective. Now, I never have I heard any attributes of the Lord or his commands during that conversation. But it was something in the corporate world that worked for them. But, you know, I heard an interesting saying that if a president or a king would take off for a month, most people wouldn't notice. But if the garbage man who takes out your trash doesn't show up, you're going to be concerned. <laughs> you're going to notice. But the Lord knew the importance of continuing with him because he bestows to them a kingdom. Unique rewards are given to unique servants in the kingdom of God. Unique can be seen in doing the things no one else was willing to do. Many would love to wear a crown, but they're not willing to die for it in the form of a martyr. Now let's take a look here at 31 through 38 as we finish this up here. And it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to them, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And then he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So could you imagine hearing the news that the devil wants to sift you like wheat? <laughs> Which was like, it was a, what they did, they would take a sharp, a very sharp sickle, and they would cut the wheat in half. The, the Lord and Satan both knew that there would be a denial of Christ from Peter. And he obviously knew the effect that Peter would have in the kingdom later. But we have seen in the world where chaff and wheat were separated in the wind. And the metaphor was used within certain people who were chaff and those who were wheat. You know, was it that Peter was thought of as chaff by Satan? Or maybe perhaps he was a major threat. Which is why the threat came in of wanting to sift him like wheat. Well, the Lord sees potential in all kinds. But Satan contributes to the problems. And we will see that Peter was wheat, not chaff. Peter was predicted to deny the Lord, as was Judas was predicted to betray the Lord. See, the difference was the one that one repented where the other one killed himself not repenting. Now, I've heard some people argue that, well, Judas may have repented. We don't know that. And we don't know who repents or who does, uh, you know, or who does in some cases. Well, if I could say something here, the, the word of God called two people in the Bible the sons of perdition, which means damnation. Perdition means damnation. The sons of damnation were the Antichrist and Judas Iscariot. Now, if he had truly repented, he would not have probably he would not have had to have hanged himself from a tree. And it states in Deuteronomy from God himself that anyone who is hung from a tree is accursed. 
And again, I, I quote from the word of God and, and compare it to the truth. And the results from the truth was true repentance. Praise God for his grace and, and, and for Peter and his example of humility and repentance. Because we, like Peter, can say nothing like, I'm ready to die with you and then run to the hills when it comes true. We could say one thing and then say another. Like, you know, that's what he did, right? But after that, the Lord instructs on supplies for the road because they were traveling from town to town and at times Gentile areas. And, and if you were, uh, if you've ever observed hikers and campers, they would carry a lot of stuff on their backs. And the Lord instructs wisely. Take what's needed. Don't let unnecessary supplies hold you back. And swords among the twelve disciples. Well, he said two was enough. See, the times are changing. And hatred and persecution is, is at a new low. And people will be willing to kill you because of it. Now, we, we never seen in scripture that it was ever used until Jesus was arrested in the garden. And Peter took a, a shot at that. But preparation was the thing instructed. See, shepherds, when traveling with the sheep, would carry a staff to keep them together on the road. But then he would also carry a rod to fight off the wolves. People can be more deadly at times, you know. I, I was hiking around a park near me, which I like to go to often, and it, it was getting dark. And as I was walking, there was a lady by herself there. She was probably in her, she was in her 70s, actually. And she was looking at an area. She stood there by herself. She heard uh, coyotes howling in the distance. And as I came close, she asked if I, if I knew the direction that it was coming from. And I said, yes, not too far from here, uh, from the west. So at that point, I decided to walk with her through the rest of the trails. And I told her, that I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad that we're not alone out here with those coyotes. And she said, well, they don't concern me. It's the people that concern me. Well, she was right. You know, we walked and we talked until she got to the car. And I was blessed to be with good company that evening. But, you know, the Lord was with them. And, and in his presence was the greatest protection and in, in his presence is still amongst us, if you want his presence in your life, then you will, you will be in his presence in heaven one day because you made a choice to say, Lord, I want you in my life and in my heart. And you have the chance right now to do just that. There's an opportunity at every message. There's an opportunity at every given time. The Holy Spirit speaks to your heart. And you believe. You believe in everything that you're, everything that you just heard. You believe in everything that the Lord just said. And, uh, we, we take a look at these things and we say to ourselves, thank you, Lord. Yes, I do believe in you. I do believe in everything that I just heard. Because your Holy Spirit spoke to me. Do you want to receive Him? Do you want to receive eternal life in heaven? There's one simple way, and it's the way he said to do, which was to receive him, to believe in him and to receive him. So let's do that now if you feel led. Let's together say the prayer. To receive Christ as your Lord, Savior, and Father. And by doing that, you just simply repeat after me. Dear God, please forgive me. Please forgive me of all of my sins, as I confess, Lord, to you that I am a sinner. Lord, please forgive me. And cleanse me of all of my sins. Lord, as I receive you in my heart, as my Father, my Lord, and my Savior. 
Receive me now, Lord, as I receive you. And may you remember me and receive me, Lord, into your kingdom when my time is up. For, Lord, you are my Father, my Lord, my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, again, we're, as we're getting close to the end, you know, we're coming to that, what I like to call the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. The birth. The death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. So I want to take the moment now, just again, thank you, to congratulate you if you said the greatest prayer you could ever say, and that of receiving the Lord in your heart. So let's together continue to walk, to walk through the Bible, to walk through God, and do so in prayer, with and for one another. May God keep and bless you always.